I'm Elena Salinas, and this is the Women in Tech Show, a show where women in tech talk about technology and career development. Today's guest is Stephanie Hurlbert, founder and owner of Binomial. Binomial is making one of the best texture compressors. In this episode, Stephanie explains what texture compression is and why this is still a bottleneck in graphics engineering. We also talked about what graphics engineering is and how she began working in this area when she was building art installations around companies. Stephanie also highlighted several open source projects and gave advice on how to get started in graphics engineering. If you have any feedback, please write a review on iTunes or send me a tweet at Tech Women Show. Stephanie Hurlbert, founder and owner of Binomial, is joining us this afternoon. Stephanie, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. One of your earliest exposure to graphics engineering was on a job that you had building art installations around companies, which I want to talk about. But first, I want to ask you, how do you define graphics engineering? Sure. So graphics engineering can be a lot of things. Someone might use a tool like Unity um, and focus on shaders and getting lighting looking right. And that that's graphics programming, definitely. The graphics programming that I have been focusing on is typically called low-level graphics programming, where I work with C++ and directly with graphics APIs themselves. So um, in other words, kind of the source of engines and uh, game tools to basically make graphics work at a low level. And let's talk about that job that you had building the art installations. What were those art installations? What did they consist of? It was all kinds of stuff. So uh, one of my favorites was uh, a project that I led, which was for a company called Savills over in London. And we built them a a giant sculpture. (laughs) And basically it was a sculpture of rectangular uh, cuboids where each of the four sides was a monitor. And we stacked those on top of each other and lined them with LEDs. So it was like this cuboid structure that was five, uh, five of these monitor cubes tall. And we basically hooked all that up and uh, allowed them to control what content displayed on all of those screens and synced all those screens together so that they were coordinated. And they put this structure in their lobby so that uh, people entering their building could be impressed and think they were a very cool company to work for. Who designed that that sculpture? We worked with uh, a couple designers. Uh, there were there was an initial team that designed the concept, and then once the concept was designed, it was handed over to me and another designer to actually implement it and make it work. So I didn't help with the actual hardware of building it, but I did help with the software side. And one of the things you mentioned during this job is that. Uh, there was a point that you reached where tools, specific tools needed to be built for the purpose of these installations. What was one example of a tool that had to be built? So with the sculpture I mentioned, for instance, there were too many monitors to be controlled by one computer. So we actually had three computers in that sculpture, (laughs) but they needed to be perfectly in sync. And 
They also needed to be communicating with the LED strips around them, and they needed to be networked to a server so that they could be controlled remotely. And that's a lot of back-end work um, for something like Unity that is, is just meant to make a game on one monitor. So what we ended up doing was um, modifying an engine called Open Frameworks. Uh, and using a bunch of their tools and uh, kind of putting them together in a different way and editing them when they didn't quite fit what we need to be able to do all of that networking work and talking to the um, you know LEDs uh, controller and everything like that. Is Unity a game engine? Unity is a game engine. It's it's a p very popular game engine, and it's not the only one. There are lots of tools, like Unreal Engine is another example. And what are some of the things that you can do with a game engine? Is this for rendering the graphics, or what does it encompass at a higher level? A game engine often encompasses a lot of things, um, and they tried a game engine specifically does, won't focus on stuff like the art installations I just described. It'll focus on things that are needed in games, so either 2D, 3D, or both, and they'll provide you the tools that you probably will need in a game. So in a game, for instance, you probably need physics calculations to happen. So like if your character runs into a wall, you don't need to figure out all the math for the Newtonian physics when you collide. You can just tell the game engine to say, look, this character is a collider, that wall is a collider make sure the character doesn't fly through the wall. They provide a lot of tools like that so that you can more easily build games. And currently, you and your team at Binomial are working on making the best texture compression product. In computer graphics, how do you define texture? Right, so texture is kind of a specialized word, but we use it on purpose. It, it, it basically covers anything that you'd consider to be an image. We're very used to talking about JPEGs or PNGs. Those are all textures. That's just another image format. We shy away from saying photograph or image because it can be so much more than that. For instance, uh, depth cameras often use 2D images to store their depth data. Uh, in games, they'll often store extra data in textures to um, signify lighting or how bumpy something is. It's not just photographs, which is, which is really interesting and also a challenge for us. And when I think about texture, I always think of Pixar movies, like the fur that they develop. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's true that it's not it's not textures in like uh, like actual physical textures that you might find. Like fur, for instance, would probably be not just an image, but actual mesh extending out, depending on how people implemented it. So that that's just a different use of the word texture right it's true it's true computer graphics people need to be more creative and come up with more more words i guess <laughs> your team at binomial and you are focusing specifically on texture compression what does this mean so what we do is there's this problem where let's say you make a game or an application and typically in a game, you have meshes and you then have a texture that you map onto the mesh. So the mesh will be the character and the texture allows you to paint like a face and clothes on the character. And those textures um, are stored on your computer. And surprisingly enough, 
that texture data usually takes up over 70% of the game's data, which is huge. And as we move to wanting 4K resolution and VR and all the, and make it work on your tiny mobile device, we're running into problems there. And what we do is we say, I know it's 70% of your data now, but we can reduce that data size for you. And that allows people to do a lot more with textures in their games. What makes texture a bottleneck? That's actually a really good question. Um, and uh, it's a complicated answer. You know, you could have asked, why haven't they solved this problem 20 years ago? Why is this still a problem? <laughs> and I think one of the biggest reasons is we keep getting new GPUs and it's really hard to keep up. Uh, the G and GPU architectures are very different than the CPU. So the GPU is what helps you render anything on your screen. And it's structured in such a way that it's basically a lot of not very powerful computers executing all at once and very parallel, but each little computer doesn't have a lot of power to it. And so when GPU manufacturers started creating better GPUs, they noticed that they were running into memory problems with textures, like severe memory problems. There's not a lot of memory on GPUs. So they created compressed formats that had GPU hardware that specifically decoded them. And what these compressed formats allowed you to do was keep most of the image hyper-compressed in GPU memory and only take out the parts you need. It was an incredible advancement. The downside to this is that that format is huge for the CPU. Since they're all based up in um, you know, little tiles that can be processed by these uh, mini computers on the GPU, there's a lot of repetitive data in there. So it, it makes the CPU storage unnecessarily large. What are the several steps of texture compression? In, if you're just using a GPU format, the ones I described, what you do is you uh, have your artist uh, make a beautiful image in Photoshop or, or whatever, whatever texture you're going to need, and they'll go and um, when they hit save, instead of turning it into a JPEG, uh, they'll turn it into the GPU format that you need. Um, that's one step and then that's really easy. You just put that on your computer and load it up. Another option is if that's too big for you, which is often is, you could save it as a JPEG and then right before you're ready to render, you can decompress it and recompress it to a GPU format, like right before you need it. And then the last option would be to take something like a zip uh, or lossless compression and basically have your artist compress that and then when you're ready to ship your game, losslessly compress all your textures, like put them in a zip archive. And when you're ready, decompress them and send them to the GPU. So those are a few methods. And, and what we do is we have two options. You can either make a uh, really efficient, um, efficiently structured GPU format that better losslessly compresses with our compressor, or we make a custom format dot basis that then gets quickly turned into a GPU format whenever you're ready. And the good news is both of those methods are about the size of JPEG, which is much smaller. You mentioned lossless compression, but when I was researching about this topic, I, I read that lossy compression can be tolerable for texture. How, how does that translate to what we see if it's lossy? 
Absolutely. So one important thing to know is that GPU formats themselves are lossy. Like to render a texture on the GPU, you will lose data um, unless you want to store it uncompressed on the GPU, which is not good for performance. So we're already losing data. And what one of the things we do with our compressor is we try to make any artifacts or, or loss of quality similar to the data you're already going to lose turning it into a GPU format. And it's it's actually the psychology behind this is fascinating. It's so cool to see how people don't really pick up on certain artifacts. So we do a lot of research into that as well. To see if they notice a difference in the quality? Yeah, so uh, if you, we basically provide quality settings. So if you turn the quality settings up really high, you're really not going to notice a difference because it doesn't change the quality much. If you, if you push them lower, you will notice a difference. But the benefit is you'll get huge size benefits. So uh, it's kind of all about trade-offs. You know, some games care about quality. Some games care more about low texture size. So would this be analogous, for example, with an image, if it looks pixelated, like there's a threshold where we can notice the blurriness. Is it similar to this, what you're talking about? Exactly. We have different artifacts than something like JPEG, but to get a basic sense of, uh, you know, how artifacts can make an image look bad, there's, there's lots of examples of lower quality JPEGs on the internet that, that you can see. Um, but yeah, GPU formats have slightly different artifacts. Um, it's really interesting. When you first started looking at this, this problem, texture compression to, to provide a solution, were there, are there currently any particular steps in the process that you, you determined this would be a good step to try to optimize versus one step that might not be as good? Definitely. Um, and the first thing that comes to mind is the, the way we started this product was 10 years ago, my business partner, Rich, made a library called Crunch. And it's completely open source and it's a texture compression library. And one of our main goals was we liked a lot of what Crunch did. So we wanted to take some of those ideas, but we wanted to make it better. And one of the biggest weaknesses of Crunch was that it only supported one format well and then a little bit of another format. So it covered a basic lower quality desktop format and then a basic format for mobile that wasn't done very well. It wasn't fully fleshed out. So. Our, our first goal was to take that and make it work for all GPUs. And so for the past few months, what we've been really focusing on is mobile. We've been focusing on getting, uh, getting the mobile support really good quality, um, specifically with a format called ETC. In a little more detail, for example, in texture compression, we can have the decoding step, but also the transcoding. Is, is there... A particular one that you that you worked on optimizing in addition to what you just mentioned about mobile? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one of the biggest steps we've uh, been working on recently is actually optimizing um, the clusterizer algorithms and the algorithms for the different uh, selectors and endpoints. So to give you a basic idea of how these formats work, in DXT, what you have is you have these 
two endpoints in so picture like a 3d color space that that within that 3d cube you have every color that you know rgb and you have a line through that color space and you have two endpoints and they they specify where that line starts and ends and then you have selectors that choose where on that line you can draw colors from. And basically what you do is you split the image into blocks, four by four pixel blocks. And for each block you say, what are good endpoints and what are good selectors for this given block? Uh, and then for ETC, we have, uh, they don't let you choose two completely different colors. You just get one base color and you get to choose different um, different intensities of that, so different light and dark uh, versions of that color. So we kind of had to take one compressor and make it work with both of those ideas. And one of the biggest optimizations we wanted to do was, especially with formats like DXT, we don't want you to have uh, too many different colors. Like, for instance, if you had two slightly different forms of pink, your eye is probably not going to notice if you just made them a pink that was close enough. So what we do is we have a clusterizer algorithm that figures out which colors are going to be somewhat similar. And instead of having different data for all those colors, we just pick one that represents them closely. So we actually spent a good solid month just optimizing that and making that really, really good. That, that, that's a very interesting problem. And also because like you said, you have to keep in mind who, who's the end user, because if, if you didn't think about that, maybe you wouldn't come up with that solution of well, th these three colors are very close to each other. Might as well just merge them into one. Exactly. And um, having games in mind has been really helpful and really educational because in photographs, you're used to wanting the highest quality. But in games, a lot of the times our feedback is like, look, this is a patch of grass on the ground that you're going to look at for two seconds. Like it needs to look close enough, but it doesn't need to look crazy high quality. And they just it just needs to be a form of green. It doesn't need to be the perfect green. So it, that feedback has told us to have uh, low quality settings that people can choose. And basically what the low quality settings do is you have um, a limit on how many clusters you want. So you can have uh, basically how many different colors you're allowed to have and it uh, a lower setting will really crunch down the number of colors you're allowed to have on an image which is a huge challenge from an algorithm perspective to make that still look good yeah it, are those settings determined by the game developers for example if i work on making an environment i'm the one that says they're gonna look at the grass two seconds i'll specify a low quality setting for that. Exactly. Um, it is, it's totally up to the game developer. And to give you an idea of a really interesting challenge is we always test against photographs to try to, to try to like, you know, we don't want to make a bad quality compressor. We want to make it the best it can be. And red lips on women in photographs are some of the hardest to, to optimize for because, <laughs> because you have it, 
image that's like has almost no red in it but if you mess up those red lips it's gonna look terrible <laughs> so it's it's like actually really hard to tell your algorithm like i know this is just a tiny spot of red but it's different enough that you have to make it look good that's very interesting and when i was mentioning also who, who gets to decide those low settings I, i'm not very familiar with the gaming development process but i was thinking why don't they track the eyes of the user where, where they're looking and then based on that make some areas low quality, but this probably the, not the most efficient way, but. No, actually you just mentioned a really hot topic in VR research right now. Uh, what you just mentioned is called foveated rendering. And what that is, is uh, eye tracking, using eye tracking to uh, determine what needs to be high quality. Because when you're in a VR headset, they're working on actually tracking your eyes and seeing where they look. And VR is an example where <laughs> texture compression is a huge problem. And if we, it's, it's fascinating. Like you have to look up research on this because it's really cool. Uh, where we look, we really don't notice um, the quality where we're not looking. And there's all kinds of articles on how to handle that properly. It's a fascinating topic. Wow, yeah, that, that sounds really interesting. I didn't know they were actually doing this. Yeah, totally. Let's talk about earlier in your career, you also worked on Oculus Medium, which is a an immersive VR experience. And from what I understand, you can sculpt things, model, paint, create tangible objects. If, in this product, in what specific aspect did you get to work on? So I worked on helping them ship it uh, for Oculus Connect, so ship their initial like demo of it. And then I worked a little bit on research for techniques after uh, Connect and what came after that. And it was it's a really cool project. They just shipped the 1.0 um, and they've changed a bit since I've been on there. But basically at its core, it's a voxel engine. So you store basically you store your sculpture data in in voxels uh, which are basically a 3d grid of data that says is the sculpture here or is the sculpture not here where and it helps you detect where the edges are and you can use that data to both either render it directly or build a mesh depending on how you want to implement your engine and here again this reminds me of earlier in your career when you were working at the art installations in Oculus Medium, the, there's again the intersection between art and technology. Why do you think it's important to have better tools for expressive works of art? That is such a good question. And it's actually a, a very heated debate in the engine and art communities. Um, how much do your tools shape your work? And there's a lot of people who believe that the tools that you use, even if they seem like they're they're neutral tools like oh this is just a game engine you can make any game with it or this is you know you can make any texture you want in photoshop the way the tools work still push you to a different style and then there's the other side of it where sometimes the tools simply don't work well enough for what you need uh, which was the case at, with the art installations and was definitely the case with Medium as well. Uh, you know, we uh, prototyped it in Unity first before I came on and they 
they just could not get the performance high enough because Unity wasn't meant at the time for a VR voxel engine. <laughs> it was meant to make, you know, 2D mobile games or, or 3D games that fit a certain mold. If you want to be uh, an, an artist that is less limited by your tools, at least knowing the language of lower level programming helps equip you to actually make the art that you want to make and know when you're ready to change your tools for that. Did Oculus switch to an in-house solution after Unity? Exactly, exactly. And that's that's part of why I came on board is uh, because before working at Oculus, I was actually at Unity helping them build their graphics engine. And um, and so they needed, they needed someone with uh, experience building engines. And in an interview you did with Scott Hanselman, which I'll include in the show notes, you mentioned that people don't need to have a really strong background in math to get started with graphics engineering. One of the ways that you mentioned was to get exposure by looking at open source projects. What were some of those open, open source projects that you either used or work with? Um, one of my favorites is Cinder. Uh, that is an open source graphics engine and it's just so nicely built. <laughs> and it also has a lot, it's meant for artists to work with. So it has layers that are easier to work with, even though it's still all C++. And it has low level layers that allow you to change things if you if you need to, to go to that point. So I really like working with that. Um, and then other open source engines are Open Frameworks is also C++. Unreal Engine is great because you get access to all that source code, even though it's a huge code base. Um, and then there are also um, higher level tools, even like processing is a great example for creative work. And if you want to just learn graphics programming, also playing around with shaders can be helpful. There is uh, Shader Toy and GLSL Sandbox are both great examples. And the first one that you mentioned was Cinder. And you mentioned it's in C++ and that artists are using it. What are some of the things that they're doing? Is it you're programming in C++ and you're, you're saying draw a line from X to Y and things like that, or? Exactly. So there's basically, uh, like you can, you can give higher level commands, like uh, you can use some of the libraries they've built on top to be like, draw this shape or, uh, you know, texture it this way. Um, and artists are doing all kinds of things with it. it. It works in VR. It works in AR, in HoloLens. I think they're working on that now. Um, and it also works on all kinds of creative platforms like, uh, you know, theater or connecting different devices together and all kinds of things. Is C++ still the major language being used in graphics engineering? Uh, in, in the kind of graphics engineering I've been doing, which is working with low-level code, uh, graphics APIs directly, uh, engine programming, definitely. C++ is a great language to learn. If, if you're going to stay using an engine like Unity, C Sharp, and, and learning Unity shaders is good. But for someone who wants to really get into graphics programming, do C++, definitely. What is a shader? Yeah, so shaders are awesome. <laughs> so with <laughs> with C++, right, you, you have a compiler that turns it into machine code that your CPU understands. 
But with shaders, what you do is you send that program to your GPU, and then the GPU has a compiler that it turns into GPU assembly. So shaders are like the equivalent for, for the GPU, and they're, they're specialized to run really well on that different GPU architecture. At the time when you were using open source projects, were you also contributing to the projects or were you mostly getting exposure to graphics? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, when I was working with Cinder and Open Frameworks, we had actually built out a custom in-house engine that was a modified version of Cinder and Open Frameworks. Uh, we actually had multiple engines. Um, and so what we would do is we would grab stuff from Cinder and uh, and then just add it to our custom engine. It's a pity. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we actually did open source a version of of what we were working on, but I really would have liked to contribute back to Cinder. There just wasn't a lot of time at that at that point in life. Last question: What are some of your favorite graphics, either from movies or video games? Gosh, that's a great question. <laughs> that's so hard. <laughs> okay, I'm always inspired by uh, creative work. Uh, so if you go to a creative applications uh, website, they have all kinds of uh, examples of how this computer programming is used in in the like creative arts in terms of just a like p technical perspective especially i love looking at what pixar does i think they're amazing i mean they have like 20 hours to render a frame but i still like dreaming that we'll one day <laughs> be able to do that in real time <laughs> so i think like i those are my two favorites is is kind of looking at uh dreaming of far in the future what we could accomplish by looking at non-real-time rendering as well as just looking at how people use uh programming in creative ways are, are where I get a lot of inspiration. Well, Stephanie, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It's been great talking to you. No, thank you. It's been great talking to you as well.